Uh, good morning, Midtown. It's good uh, to be together this morning. It's been great to be together, uh, all of our Midtown congregations together uh, for worship in the mornings of January. Um, and a big part of that is uh, we've been camping out in 1 Corinthians 13, this, this passage that uh, we've been saying is uh, widely uh, you know, seen and heard, but wildly misunderstood. We've been camping out in this passage as a, as a whole church, as all of our congregations, because we're really exploring and, and kind of putting our hands back again on the vision of our church. Our vision and our desire uh, to be a body of people who are being progressively transformed in every area of our lives by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what our mission statement is, gospel transformation. We believe that the gospel transforms every part of our lives. We've talked about spiritual maturity. We, we believe that the gospel matures us spiritually in our relationship with God. We, we mature in our love for him first by maturing in his love for us. We have to know and understand and experience like we just sang his mercy and his love for us. That spiritual maturity leads to emotional maturity. That God's love actually begins to transform my relationship with myself and my relationship with my emotions. It makes it possible really probably for the first time, it makes it possible for me to love all of me for the reasons that he loves me with the love that he has for me. And it makes it possible for me to grow and, and seeing that my emotions are a gift from him and they're inviting me into a deeper understanding of myself and, and who am I? I'm the one that he loves, right? Well, that spiritual maturity and that emotional maturity, they eventually, they kind of trickle down and they lead to this four, or sorry, third thing. We'll get to the fourth thing next week. This third area of maturity that we really desire to be about here at Midtown, and that's this relational maturity. That God's love for us would begin to transform our relationships with one another, how we are towards one another and with one another. Because people who are spiritually maturing and emotionally maturing, eventually, when that gets to their relationships, People who are maturing, they change their relational world. They affect their relational world, right? And I just want to say this up front. Randy kind of touched on this last week that it's, it's not just purely linear. It's not like, well, it starts, you know, just with spiritual maturity and then it's emotional maturity and then it's relational maturity. I would say that spiritual maturity kind of encompasses it all, but any one of these areas can begin to kind of affect the other. They can be the front door to the other. As I spiritually mature, it invites me into emotional maturity, right? And as I emotionally and explore my emotions, it will help me spiritually mature. One informs and kind of forms the other, and they do this dance, but eventually it flows down into what we're going to talk about today, relational maturity. Because if, if we are going to be relationally healthy people, if we're going to be a relationally healthy church, a relationally healthy body, a lot of that is going to depend on where we're at spiritually and emotionally as a people and as individuals. And you'll find, I think I've found in my own life, that oftentimes uh, it's being in relationships with other people because we can't mature in the gospel alone. We're, we were created for relationship. We're made to be in relationship with God and with one another and it's actually oftentimes when I'm in relationships with people, in real relationships with people, 
um, that I find where I hit the limits of my spiritual maturity and my emotional maturity, right? I actually mature in those other areas by getting to the threshold of where I'm good at loving people and failing to love people. I reach the limit of that. You know, that's, that's just try loving someone who's not easy to love. And there's nothing better than that to drive you into your own personal deeper need of Jesus, right? So relational maturity can, can also, and going on this journey of relational maturity can actually help us. It does help us spiritually mature and emotionally mature. They all work together in a dance, right? So we've been looking at this 1 Corinthians passage, and let's just, I'll say this really simply. The Corinthian church, uh, they had a love problem, right? They had a relationship problem. Their, their church was full of conflict. Their church was full of infighting. Their church was full of, I'm better than you because I can do this and because you can't do that. They had a love problem. There were a lot of great things that were going on in the Corinthian church, powerful things, spiritually powerful things. But Paul smelled something and he was calling it out. He was saying all those things are going on, but they're devoid of this essential thing that it, it really is what it means to be a Christian and that's love. These things that, that, that they were doing, they were devoid of love. They loved themselves for all the wrong reasons and we're all prone to do that, right? But they also, because they love themselves for the wrong reasons, they withheld love from other people, forgiveness and care for other people for those same reasons, right? And Paul is calling them, he's rebuking them is what he's doing. Back to the gospel. He's, he's, I think I said he's grabbing the chin of their heart. He's literally dragging their face back to the truth, right? Of the gospel, of God's love, because he knows something. That when we experience God's love for us, it will pour out into our relationships. We will love differently. We will relate differently because we are loved by him. So we're gonna read out of 1 Corinthians, one of the sections of this, this hymn of love, 1 Corinthians 13. I've asked Jess to read it for us this morning. This is 1 Corinthians um, 13, four through seven. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. This is the word of the Lord. Let me, uh, let me pray for us real quick. Lord, uh, apply this uh, truth to our hearts. Uh, we desperately need to hear it uh, this morning. I... I desperately needed to hear it this week as I, I prepared. So uh, God, my mouth right now and open our hearts to what you have for us in your name. Amen. All right, well, the first thing, um, I, I want to start here um, in, this, in this section that often gets read at weddings about patience and kindness and not envying, boasting. But the first thing is this, um, and we, we mentioned this in, in the week on spiritual maturity that there are two sides to, this, to the coin of what Jess just read for us. And the first side of the coin is this, that this is Paul describing the gospel to us first. That Paul is, he's personifying love here when he says love is this, love is patient, is kind, and it doesn't envy and it does not boast, it is not proud, right? It's personified love. What Paul is saying here is, is he's not saying, hey, this is just some, 
some kind of bar you should shoot for, Corinthian church. Let me just throw out some descriptions of, of, of some good ways that you could be towards one another. He's first and foremost saying, this is who God is towards you. That he loves you this way. And we, we have to start there. It's the gospel to us first, for us first. It's not just a checklist. Uh, it's not, uh, it's just something to kind of try to attain to. Because if you really read that and you really pay attention to it, I think it's why it's so ridiculous that they, people read this at weddings and everybody kind of like, oh. Because if you read it, it's, the bar is already so stinking high. It's, it's crazy. Always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It's an always love. I can't make that promise, right? Not in and of myself. This is the gospel for us. It's the gospel to us. And so what it should do initially, instead of becoming this like, I'm going to try to be patient, should initially humble us, right? Because that bar is so high and I realize it's only God who is this way all the time towards me. It humbles me because I, I acknowledge I cannot love that way. And in fact, if I'm ever going to love that way, I first have to receive that love, right, from him. He humbles us and then he holds us in that love. You know, it says in John 15, I want you to remain in it. I want you to, I want you to steep in it. I want you to have your, your conscience flooded, your heart swamped by the love of God for you. I want you to be held in it. Like uh, Elliot and Britta are holding their newborn daughter right now, Oakland. I want you to, like a daddy scoops his daughter up in his arms and a mama says it's safe. He would say, let me hold you in that love. That love that you can't do, but I do for you. And when he holds us and we let that song, like a, like a father who sings songs over his children, which is what God does for us, that song of love wash over me. It does something. It, it, it restores my heart to the joy of my own salvation. I, I actually am restored. It rejoys my heart in my own receiving of God's love his forgiveness, and then it hurls me out into the world. I used that word a few weeks ago, hurls. It made me, that's not a great word. I've made me think of like Wayne's world where like Garth's like, Wayne, I'm about to hurl, right? Like not that kind of hurling. You don't go puke on people, but kind of you do. You like love puke on them, right? You're just, you, it's literally pouring out of you, God's love. I just literally said you love puke on people. Anyways, do with that what you will. He hurls us into the world as those who love differently because we are those who have love. We're not living as those who are doing everything to get love. We already have it. So it's first, this is God's love to us. But the second side of that coin, and Paul's, he's, he's spinning the coin. He's saying it's also God's love through us. God's love, it's not just personified description of God it's God's love becoming personified in me. I become patient like this. I become kind like this. My life is not marked by envy and boasting and pride or dishonoring other people or self-seeking. It becomes personified in me. God's love through me to other people. That happens. And Jesus said, that's how they're gonna know that you belong to me. That will be the qualitative difference between you and the rest of the world is you love in a way that absolutely shocks the world around you. They, they won't know that you belong to me because of your gifts. 
or because of your salary or because of your abilities or because of your wisdom or because of your eloquence or your sacrifice. All of that's great, but what they'll know that you belong to me by is because you love differently. And that love, it manifests itself in observable, tangible, observable attitudes, behaviors, temperaments, and mentalities in your relationships. It's the gospel for us, it's the gospel to us, and then it's the gospel through us, right? That's what relational maturity looks like. It's having my life marked and rooted in flowing out of God's love for me, and now I can set free to love other people. So I want to talk about one specific area, because we could pick apart any one of, of these things, patience or kindness or envy. Um, and this is where we're about, I'm just going to ask for some grace here. Uh, we're about to leave sermon teaching land, and we're about to get into confession land. Um, one of the uh, horrible privileges of preaching <laughs> is, is you end up um, really getting ripped apart by this stuff in preparing. And um, the Lord has really gotten a hold of me about one specific area, um, one that I feel led uh, to sit in for a while and kind of tear apart a little bit and look at more closely. And it's um, where it says, it, meaning love, love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. And I think, I think probably why I'm led to talk about this this morning is um, it, it's probably internally the most difficult for me personally. Um, I certainly, in leaning into this, saw I, f I failed at this this week so much it, it shocked me how easily I'm angered and, and how I keep a record of wrongs. Um, so some of it's that. Um, some of it's that it touches on all these other areas like patience and kindness and not delighting in evil and rejoicing in the truth. But I think some of the reason I feel led to stick on this one area is um, because I believe that uh, if this changed in our relationships, uh, if I was not easily angered and I kept no record of wrongs, um, it would radically transform the landscape of all of my relationships, and I, I literally believe it would change our world. Um, so as Christians, I'm just going to say this up front. Uh, if you really understand the gospel, um, like we draw that cross chart, uh, we should be Ph.D. level forgivers. We should be people who practice forgiveness and reconciliation in such a profoundly countercultural and counterintuitive way that it would rock the world uh, because that's what Jesus did for us. So let's pull this apart. All right, everybody, chin straps on. All right, here we go. Um, yeah, love is not easily angered. L one more uh, caveat. You could yeah, but this to death, like, yeah, but, yeah, but what he's, yeah, but don't yeah, but. Uh, yeah, but is probably your flesh. It may not be, but it's probably mostly your flesh, all right? So lean in. Love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love is not easily angered. Let's look at that for a second. It doesn't say this, all right? You hear me? It does not say this. Love never gets angry. It doesn't say that. 
it says that love is not easily angered. Paul in Ephesians says this, in your anger, do not sin. He doesn't say anger is sin. He says there's, there's a place to be angry, but in your anger, that anger can lead to sin. Look in the Gospels, you see Jesus got angry, right? And he expressed that anger in certain ways and in certain times. He expressed it. We could look at some of those passages. At some of those passages, I would say he expressed it for the right reasons. So what is, what is Paul getting at here when he says love is not easily angered? We have to kind of go back to emotional maturity for a second. Uh, what Randy kind of led us in last week, uh, we, we called him the Randalorian after, uh, after Sunday's sermon. You guys can see it right now, right? Randy's head on top of the Mandalorian's body, right? We have to go back into emotional maturity, right? What's Paul getting at? Love is not easily angered. What is anger? Anger is an emotion, right? And we already said that emotions are gifts to us from the Lord. So it's not a bad thing in and of itself, but I have to understand what it's about. Anger is oftentimes, I think pretty much, an expression of what we love. I get angry, right, when something I love is threatened or compromised. Like when my kids fall down, I remember teaching Ford to ride a bike, which, man, was an adventure if you guys know Ford. Uh, He would fall and, I mean, just bloodied, right? And and I remember thinking, I, like, I would literally get angry watching him fall. So much so that I had to talk to my kids about, like, I'm not mad at you. I'm just mad at the fact you fell because I don't want you to get hurt, right? Because I love you. But it's funny. It's like, I'm not mad at you for falling on a bike. You're trying to learn how to ride a bike. But anger is right there because, what? I'm angry because something I love is, is threatened right now. I might get hurt. That's a natural thing. But we have to stop and we have to ask a question. And the question is this, what happens when I love the wrong things? If anger is the expression, the emotion attached to, you know, me loving something and that thing being threatened, what happens if what I love isn't good? Is it possible that my anger is actually exposing my disordered loves? my disordered heart, that that my anger is actually exposing that my love is out of whack, right? That that I may actually overlove something that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I love it too much. Like when Paul says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. He doesn't say money is evil. He says when you love it and it's in a, a place of your heart that is bad, it leads to evil, Right? What happens when I love the wrong things? Because scripture teaches that the heart apart from the grace and forgiveness and mercy of God, it does love all the wrong things. It puts our loves in all the wrong order. Randy reminded me of a story of uh, when we were camping, he and I took a few guys, uh, his sons and a few other high school boys to an island uh, off the coast of Florida, down by Cape Canaveral, the area called Mosquito Lagoon. That sounds smart to go camping and a place called the Mosquito Lagoon. But we went and he boated in and it was really rugged and just sweet. 
And, uh, but we found out after a couple of nights of eating and, and you know, being on these islands that these islands <laughs> were infested with raccoons. And he was reminding me of this story that, you know, you're, you're eating and so you're creating trash and, and, you know, raccoons love trash. And so about three nights in, I was, um, I was up in the middle of the night because we would go to bed at night and you turn off all the lights and that's when the raccoons come alive, right? You can hear them little like, you know, they're scurrying around your tent like, right? So I'm kind of a light sleeper. So anyways, Brandy's in his tent. I'm in my tent, everybody else in their tent. And Anyways, what, what happened over a period of time the rest of the week was is there began to be this battle between me and the raccoons in the, in the middle of the night. And one night, Randy unzipped his tent, and he said I was standing there in my, in my boxers with a, like a hand-fashioned spear, I guess, that I'd made during the day. And I was literally like beating raccoons off of a tree who were trying to get to our garbage. And Randy asked me this one question through the mesh of his tent. He goes, are you defending garbage? And I realized I was. (laughs) I was angry with raccoons and I was protecting something I loved called our garbage, right? I don't love garbage, but in that moment, my loves were disordered, right? I was defending something that wasn't worthwhile. So I got back in my tent and spent the evening feeling ashamed of myself. I'm kidding. No, it's a good picture of what if I love the wrong thing, right? Am I, is my anger about love of the right thing or the wrong thing? Because scripture says because of sin, what I love naturally in my flesh is me, right? The nature of fallen mankind, it is self-seeking. Where he says here, love is not self-seeking. It is self-seeking. You know, Tara, I think it was Tara Lones, me loves me some me, Right? Yeah, that's true. Apart from the grace of God, apart from God saying what he said in places in the Old Testament like Ezekiel, I have to give you a new spirit, put a new heart in you so that you would actually love the things that God loves and love him, right? I have to give you something for that to happen. Naturally, me loves me some me, and I need something outside of me for me to love something besides me. That's a lot of me's, right? The flesh loves all the wrong things in all the wrong ways. And when I'm living from that place, my anger, right? That anger that I have, that easy anger is often coming from a wrong place, from a wrong affection, from a wrong love. And because of that, my anger is wrongly being put on other people. There's this battle, this love war between the flesh and the spirit. And the flesh, do not be confused. The flesh is about itself. And anything that gets in the way of that, to us, to the flesh, it's justified retaliation. I'm justified in this angry response because the flesh, it's prejudiced. It, It loves itself. It protects itself. It justifies itself. It glorifies itself. It thinks about itself. What I'm trying to say is this, that when it says love is not easily angered, easy anger is emotionally ignorant anger towards another person. It's like a child when when your kid gets really angry, but they lack the perspective 
of their, of their own sin, right? And they just think it's everyone else. Easy anger is emotionally ignorant anger towards another person. It's unexamined anger. It's anger, that emotion, that hasn't been interrogated first by the gospel for itself, right? I take that and I go with it, that anger to Jesus. And in that dance with Jesus, here's what he does. He lovingly shows me the inconsistencies and impurities of my anger. He shows me the duplicitous nature of my anger. He shows me the potential hypocrisy in my anger, where the flesh is at in it. He slows me down enough to actually look at and say, why am I actually angry? Is this anger just a self-seeking anger? You know, am I just angry at you because I'm, I'm trying to protect myself? Or is it an other-seeking anger? Anger. I'm angry for you. I'm fighting for you and for this relationship, right? Because I love you. I don't just love myself. Is it a self-righteous anger that's full of pride? Or is it a, a self-emptying anger, right? An anger from a place of loving someone other than myself. Is it anger with humility and love or is it anger that's absent of both? Thinking about and, and just being convicted about this, I was thinking about a love that is not easily angered and it had me thinking about um, Dr. Martin Luther King. We celebrated uh, his life and his impact this week and I think he understood this, what we're talking about. He got this, he got the gospel deep down um, and was mature in how to have anger with the gospel in view and with love and in view. And in looking at some of his writings this week, he says this, he says, there is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. There's some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we're less prone to hate our enemies. And what he's saying, I think what he's getting at there is this. My anger doesn't always come from this pure place. It comes from oftentimes an impure place. Because I've got evil in me, right? I've got sin in me. I've got a flesh. So oftentimes I tell people, when, when you can see someone else's sin so clearly, they're wrong so clearly, you can see it in them so clearly because it's in you somewhere. You have to know that. And when I grapple with that, when you wrestle with that, that, that part of you, that flesh in you, with the power of the Holy Spirit and the love of God and the truth that he gives you, it humbles you and it brings you back into God's love for you. And it makes it possible now for you to even go out and love those who have wronged you, which Dr. King did. That's a part of why he was such a humble, tenacious force of love that changed his world and the course of our society. Because he, he refused to not delight in evil, but rejoice in the truth, right? He, he's saying there, uh, it's evil for us to believe there is no evil in us. <laughs> I, I don't have pride to stand on here. I've got my own sin. And the truth is this, he loves me in all of my sin and in all of my wrong. 
And when I understand that and I bask in that, when I listen to that song, it rejoices my heart and he sets me free to move towards those people who have even wronged me horribly in some ways. With humility and with love, having received grace first for myself. And that's why I'm able to extend it. Love is not easily angered. So why am I so prone to this easy, easy anger? It's not hard. We're going down into the rabbit hole of my head here. Why am I still so prone to this? This easy anger, this unexamined anger, this uninterrogated by the gospel anger. And I think it's connected to that second part where it says, it keeps no record of wrongs. And really, I mean, to sum it up is this, I, I listen to those record of wrongs more than I listen to the gospel record for me, all right? So let's talk about the record of wrongs for a second because there's a connection, I feel like, at least for me, there's a connection between my easy anger, that's a symptom of something, right? I guess there's an easy anger like someone, you know, rushed into my house and was threatening my family. Of course, I would naturally get easy anger. That's not the easy anger I'm talking about. I'm talking about something else here, the connection between easy anger and keeping a record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. When I was thinking about that, meditating on that, praying about that, I realized that a lot of my easy anger, it comes from the ledger, from the record that I keep on other people. That's why it's so quick, right? Because I've got data. <laughs> I've, got, I've got this gigantic book of, call, of your wrongs, right? And that's why it's so easy to pull out. Let me just say a few things that that it's not saying, right? We have to clarify that. It doesn't mean, when it says love keeps no record of wrongs, that it doesn't mean that love says wrong isn't wrong, right? It doesn't mean don't call it wrong. Because there, there's truth and untruth. There is evil and truth, right? There's right and wrong. So it doesn't mean don't call it wrong. And it doesn't mean that, that repeated wrongs don't need to be confronted. It doesn't mean that, that wrongs might not lead us to set boundaries because love sets boundaries with people who keep repeating wrongs, right? As you go forward, it doesn't mean that we may never set boundaries and it, and it doesn't mean that there's no consequences, justice for the wrong. That's not, I think, what Paul's talking about here. I think he's talking about that little internal thing that we do called keeping a record that little ledger that I keep in my heart that keeps score. And I think he's challenging us, he's challenged me certainly and challenging them to understand that that doesn't just affect the people that you keep the record for, it mostly affects you. So let me, let me try to explain this, how, how I do this, right? We're in Music City, right? So if you went in and you met with a producer, they would tell you about their process, right? And how they make their record. Well, this is my process, right? This is how I do it. The first thing is this, I acknowledge this and I know this is true. My flesh is a record press. Like it's set up and ready to roll to make music, right? And your wrongs, your wrongs are the lyrics that you submit to me, right? And you keep submitting to me. Because uh, all of our sin, we all have pub deals, right? We're publishing sin on one another all the time. 
Your wrongs are like lyrics that you submit. And I take those lyrics and I, I play them over and over in my head until I actually have a whole song. Sometimes I add my own verse. Sometimes I add a chorus, right? A bridge. <laughs> I connect all of your wrongs together. And I play them and I listen to them until I have this thing called a full-length album, right? I got this full-length album called You. That's who you are. And then I sit, I can, if I'm not careful, I can sit for hours alone in the record room of my own mind and I can play your record. Until I've listened to that music so much that those wrongs, they're multiplied and they've even grown way beyond the original offense. I, I literally, I can listen to your wrongs so much that, that I've made something out of your wrongs bigger than they were and I've got an entire catalog on you. I've got your, your corpus of work, <laughs> right? And guess what? When I have that record and I say, that's the music that I'm going to listen to, that's gonna be the song that I listen to to feel good about me rather than the song of the gospel. That's what Paul's confronting. Is that the music that I listen to? The record of your wrongs so I can feel good about me compared to you? Or rather do I listen to the song of the gospel that says this, it's not about you getting it right or them getting it wrong why I loved you, but I loved you when you were completely in the wrong. And I forgave you, I cast you like Kevin Redden, your sin as far as the east is from the west. And that is the record that you need spinning every single day. That's, that's the record you pick up and you put on the record player in the morning. And, and trust me, every time you wanna put that record of wrong, someone else's record on, I gotta put that gospel record over top of it. That record of God's love for me. that record that was pressed by his flesh and his blood that said, I'm gonna, at great cost to me, I'm gonna absorb the debt of your wrong and forgive you. That's the record that I need to spin and listen to all the time to keep me out of the fleshly record press that makes a record out of everybody else's wrongs so I can feel good about me. Last thing, I think, <laughs> it's not saying this, love keeps no record of wrongs. It's not saying, hey, just forgive and forget. Just forgive and, and it goes away. Um, anyone who has been seriously hurt knows that's not how it works. It, it can't be how it works, right? Because it, it hurts. I mean, it's devastating. Some of the sin that's been done uh, against me and some of the sin that's been done against you. You've been wronged. You've been sinned against, especially when that sin is a repeat offense over a lifetime. But again, this, this drew me into something that Dr. King wrote because it made me think about him. Seems almost, you know, you look and study at his life, it seems almost unimaginable for him to forgive and to love and to choose love and to choose to fight with hope 
in light of all the injustice. And yet, he was a great example, not, not a, just someone to emulate. He was a great example of when the gospel transforms a heart, when God's love gets a hold of the heart. Here's what he said. He said, forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. It means rather that the evil act no longer remains a barrier to the relationship. It means rather the evil act is no longer remains as a barrier to the relationship. Forgiveness, which is another way of saying keeping no record of wrongs, I have to forgive to do that, is a catalyst creating the atmosphere necessary for a fresh start and a new beginning. And we are free from the mental block that impedes the new relationship. Forgiveness means reconciliation, a coming together again. Without this, no man can love his enemies. The degree to which we are able to forgive determines the degree to which we are able to love our enemies. What's he saying there about keeping no record of wrongs and forgiveness? He's not saying forgive and forget. He's saying forgive, which is to live in God's forgiveness of me, to play that record. He's saying forgive and then live. Not forgive and forget, forgive and then live. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, it's difficult to not be defined and let the wrong that's been done to me set the trajectory for my future. That's why I need God's love for me because his love for me isn't defined on the past and what I've done. His love is defined for me based on him, right? He's saying, live in my forgiveness of you and then live as those who have this power to not keep record of wrongs and forgive and not be easily angered in your relationships with one another, right? Psalm 130, Lord, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. So as we close out this time, uh, it's our prayer, it's our hope, man, it's my hope for me that my life and my relationships would be marked more and more by, by not an easy anger and more and more marked by not uh, keeping a record of wrongs. And so what, would you wrestle with this now? We're gonna go into a time of kind of confession and worship. Where do you need to put down the ledger book? Where do you need to, to, to literally break the records that you're keeping on other people? There are wrongs that drowned out yours, right? Where do you need to repent of that? Because it's hurting you, not just hurting them. It's not just hurting your relationship, it's hurting you. Where do I need to set that down? And in in the compassion of God, let him take the record of the gospel, that full-length album of Jesus' love, and set it on the record player and play for you. Because he has forgiveness for you. He has grace for you. He has righteousness to replace your self-righteousness. And he's setting you free to be a remarkable lover, forgiver of the people around you and in your life, all right? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you that if you did keep a record of wrongs, who could stand? Humble us now, Lord, uh, by your love. Help us see where we need to confess that the record press of our heart has gotten out of control and we've got records on everybody and we ignore ours. Um, 
Humble us, Lord. Don't humiliate us. Humble us gently, please. And then would you hold us in your love and remind us, would you rejoice over us with your singing? And then would you set us free? Would Midtown be a community of people that Nashville and the world says these people love people and and forgive people and take offense uh, and handle offense differently than anybody we've ever met? Um, And it must be because they know something about what Jesus has done for them and experienced it. We love you. In your name, amen.